Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So we're going to be dealing with the subject of uh, God's providential sovereignty. We'll walk through that in just a moment. Let me give you a couple of dates that you're going to want to make note of, okay? Uh, Or a couple items that you're going to want to make note of. One item is this. We had two new Sunday school classes start recently. One class is taught by Margot Matheny and Joan Brame. Are both of you here? Joan's here and Margot's there in the back. They're teaching a class of uh, ladies that meets in classroom 111 at 8.30 on Sunday mornings. And then we've got another class that just began at 8.30 as well, uh, taught by Peter Schmitz and by Alan Jones. And that's also at 8.30, and I believe that's in classroom 114. So if you haven't found a Sunday school class to attend, maybe one of those is a good option. We do have classes that are meeting, lots of classes that are meeting at 9.30. At our deacons meeting last night, uh, Tad reminded us that we only have one classroom available at the 9.30 window for adults that has, uh, currently has heating and air. We have a HVAC unit out that we're working for the repair, but there's a 16-week lead time between ordering the unit and getting it in. So we are filling up our spaces uh, in that 9.30 window, so we're adding Sunday school classes at 8.30 and looking to add several more classes, both at 8.30 and at 11 o'clock. So if you're interested in getting plugged into a Sunday school class, let me know or let Pastor Tad know, let Barbara know. We will try to direct you to that space and that location that Sunday school class. Let me encourage you to be in a class. Being in a class means that you're known by a group of people, and a group of people know you. Uh, it's an opportunity to, uh, to be a part of a family. We've got some great Sunday school teachers in here. If you are currently teaching a Sunday school class at the church, would you stand up? Just let, let everybody stand up if you're teaching. I know we've got Eddie, several, several others. So if you're interested in a Sunday school, te- Sunday school class, you don't have one, there's a teacher right here. Now, I could ask all of you, you can sit down, I could ask all of you who are not in a class to stand up. That would embarrass you, but then that would clue in these Sunday school teachers, hey, I can go to that person. So I'll tell you what I'll do, I won't do that for a month. <laughs> Keep coming back on Wednesdays. I, in a month, I'll ask you to stand up if you're not in a class, and then I'll point out to the teachers, hey, did you see who that was? Go introduce yourself to them and invite them to Sunday school. So we want to continue to build uh, our, our Sunday school ministry here at church. Uh, one other, two other dates to keep in mind. The first date is October the 2nd. October the 2nd. That will be our first official member meeting following our recent bylaw revision. So for those of you that read the bylaw revision in detail, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you did or did not, but one of the changes that went into place is instead of doing a church conference as a part of our Wednesday night Bible study, we've moved that to at least or no, not less than six member meetings on Sunday afternoons. The reason for that is because all of our adult volunteers that teach in Awana or that are in other youth ministry and children's ministry programs have never been able to be a part of our church conferences. And so we moved that to a Sunday evening at 530. And the format we used on August 24th when we presented the bylaws for review 
where we had information shared from church ministries and from committees. That's going to be the format that we take on Sunday afternoon, October the 2nd. So we'll be bringing before you as a congregation any business that needs to be dealt with, as well as information and reports from ministries. So that's Sunday afternoon, October 2nd. The motivation to be here is we plan to have donuts and coffee. So you can't get a donut if you don't come to the meeting. So we'll meet in the sanctuary and we'll have donuts and coffee afterward. We're anticipating doing another member meeting in November, November the 20th. That'd be another date. That's not absolutely settled in stone, though the October 2nd one is. That November 20 meeting will be the one where we do a budget presentation for the 2023 budget along with other items there. And we're looking at maybe doing a finger food meal following that uh, member meeting at 5.30. Both of those will be at 5.30, October the 2nd, and very, very likely November the 20th. One other date to keep in mind, and I don't have a ton of details on this. Uh, Danielle Hicks is our Minister of Children and Families, and she's also been working with some ladies in the church to develop some information about women's ministry. There's been a lot of interest in the life of our church about women being involved in Bible studies and in ministries. So there is a women's ministry event planned I get this right, October 16th, 6 o'clock. That's Sunday evening, October 16th. And more details will follow both in the beacon uh, and in the, the church services. So you'll be hearing about that between now and then, October 16th. But mark your calendar for October 16th as a women's ministry meeting that would lead into some Bible studies that would take place in the fall, uh, November, December, January, and February. So those are some dates to be attentive to. More information will follow on all those items in the coming weeks. All right, so we're going to move into a discussion on providence and sovereignty. What do, we mean, what do we mean by providence? I've got two quotes there in front of you. Uh, the first quote comes from the Westminster Catechism, and it uh, carries with it the idea of what is providence. So, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures actions and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Robert Latham, a shortened version of that would be this, providence refers to God's preservation and government of creation. So we talked last week about God being the creator. He's the one who spoke everything into existence. He designed the functionality of creation, made it work so that it functions in the appropriate way. And then what providence is, is providence is God working in his creation to make sure everything functions continually as it ought to. Uh, This providence touches on the issue of God's sovereignty. It touches on all sort of ideas, as we'll see in a moment, in terms of our application. Let me show you a couple of verses that identify providence in a way that helps us understand what we're talking about. The first one is Psalm chapter 2. A fascinating book, by the way, that I read recently is uh, How the Nations Rage. It's written by Jonathan Lehman. And it talks about faith and politics. So you can imagine it's fascinating. Um, but he picks up on this passage of Scripture. That's kind of the, the headline where he moves from. And here's why. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He'll speak to them in his wrath. He'll terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You're my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. That is a promise directly from God the Father to his son Jesus. And of course, this is a messianic psalm. It's a, it's a kingship psalm, but it's a recognition that God is saying, I have a son, and I am going to make the nations his inheritance, which we see fulfilled in Matthew 28. We'll go to that in a moment. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Psalm 2 is the psalmist's reflection in a worship sense that God is King and that His kingship is being has been inaugurated through Jesus when he came to set up his kingdom on planet earth, but it's being accomplished by Jesus currently. This is not some kind of, hey, we think this is going to happen in the future. No, it is currently taking place. God is sovereign in his rule in the world. And we may, as Christians in the 21st century, look out and say, hold on a second, but Ukraine and but Russia, and but our politicians, and but the nations, and but China, and but World War II. And we can look around and see all sort of calls that we might say, how in the world can God be in charge in the midst of all of this chaos? And part of that is the doctrine of providence that we find in the pages of Scripture. How do we make sense of that? One thing I would just encourage you to do is go back and look at what God has done in the course of human history. And that's part of what we're going to do tonight. You could look at Isaiah chapter 40, where the Bible claims that, uh, that God is the one who has uh, set up kings and taken down kings. He's the one who raised up nations. He's the one who created all things and spoke them into existence and rules over all of them. And, and then you could go to Matthew 28, where Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so the Great Commission that tells us to go make disciples of all people comes out of the concept of God's reign and God's kingship, which is executed through his providence. It's how God works in the world. So let's look at some of these basic claims about God's providence. God, first of all, the first blank there, God preserves creation through his providential rule. He preserves creation through his providential rule. Let me read for you from Nehemiah chapter 9. The prophet Ezra said this in the book of Nehemiah. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heaven, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Did you catch that? You give life to everything. One of the things that the Bible claims is not just that God spoke everything into existence and then let everything go, but that God is the one who authors and sustains life. Now, folks, the, the little birds and the, and the animals that, that procreate, that life comes from a life-giving creator. The children and the grandchildren that we celebrate and love, those are gifts from a life-giving 
creator. It is God's continual work of providence to bring about life in the world in which we live. You can see also Colossians 1.17. If you're taking notes and want to look some other scripture references, Colossians 1.17, Psalm 104. You can also see Daniel and his three friends in the furnace. I mean, God preserved the life of Daniel and his three friends. Uh, Daniel in the lion's den, the three friends in the furnace, in the book of Daniel. A fascinating observation of God's preservation of his people. How about God preserving Abraham's line in Egypt? They were slaves, but yet God raised up a great nation out of them. How about God bringing them into the Canaan land? How about God protecting them even in his judgments? Assyria and Babylon all throughout the Old Testament history. One of the fascinating things about God's providence and sovereignty is yes, we get caught up in kind of the details of it. And we'll go there in a moment. The questions, how could God do this when we understand time to be that? But if you go back and look at the biblical storyline of history, okay? The people of Israel should not be a nation today. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't even have influence in the world today. They're a tiny little group of people that never had a powerful rule. The the most extensive their rule ever got was basically the lands of Philistia under David and Solomon. They've never been an empire. They never controlled world politics. They never had any kind of um, massive geopolitical control in the world. Just has never happened. And yet... 3,000 years, 3,500 years removed from the the patriarchs and the time of the Exodus. We're still talking about Israel and there's still a nation in the world today. And nearly every major Western country can draw almost a direct line back to many of their laws directly to the laws of the Old Testament. Why is that? Because of God's preservation of His glory through His people. Israel should have been destroyed over and over again, but God protected and preserved a remnant because he kept his promise. It's a beautiful affirmation of God's providential rule. Now, point number two there, God rules over all things and nations by his providence. How about Daniel 2.21? This is in Daniel's prophet, or, uh, clarification of Nebuchadnezzar's dream there in Daniel 2. He said this, God, he changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. That's what Daniel claimed for God. I just want to remind you, if anybody is in political leadership, whether it is in a democratic republic like we operate in, or whether it is in a monarchy like England, or any other kind of governmental system, there is not a king, a monarch, a president, a congressman that is not there outside of the authority and the, the, the plan of God. No one's working outside of his ultimate authority. Now, we might be troubled by that. I'm going to try to give us some illustrations in a minute that, that help us navigate and make sense of it. But God is the one who raises up and deposes. He just is. He's in control. That gives us a significant amount of confidence as followers of Jesus. So let me talk about some areas where there are tensions. This is really where we as Christians spend the majority of our thought time and our questions when we think about providence and sovereignty. So there are some tensions with relation to providence and theological or philosophical understandings. Let me tell you, first, providence is not deism. Deism, that first blank is deism. Deism is the concept that was popularized during the Enlightenment era and held by many of our founding fathers 
It's the concept that God created the world, set the rules up for the world to operate, and then kind of stepped out of the picture. And everything is functioning, but it's functioning outside of God's direct influence in the world. That's deism. It's basically a God that's not known. It's a God that's not personal. Uh, Deism is a terrible philosophical and theological system because it doesn't give us a God that knows us and forgives us and relates to us. Uh, That's not what the Bible teaches. So providence is not that. It's not God set everything up, created it, designed it, and then he stepped back out of it. Now, providence reflected in Scripture is that God intervenes in the creation that he set up and designed to function in certain ways. Uh, Secondly, providence is not open theism. Now, that's a fancy theological frame of reference. Open theism tries to make God, uh, make sense of God on our level. It's uh, an idea that God doesn't even know the future. Okay? Carries with it the concept. It tries to make sense of the issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And one of the ways that open theism makes sense of that is basically says that God sets some things up in the world... And then he limited his knowledge to what uh, was happening, not what would happen. In other words, God doesn't know the future. That's just not biblical. That is a, that is a terrible theological understanding. That's not providence either. Uh, the second uh, area of tension is the one that we all kind of wrestle with. It's providence, free will, sovereignty, and sin. How in the world can God providentially be in control of the world when there is so much in the world that appears to contradict what God wants to happen in the world? Let me give you Miller to Erickson on this. And I gave you several blanks there so you can take some notes, whatever you're comfortable with or want to write down. Let me give you several areas here. First of all, God and sin. There are four ways that God relates to sin in the world or at least relates to sin as Scripture articulates. The first thing is God can prevent sin. God can prevent sin. You can read that in Psalm uh, 81, or excuse, uh, Psalm 19, sorry. Keep your servant from willful sins. It's a prayer of David. God can prevent sin. He can. And so we ought to pray that he will. Uh, a second interaction that God has with sin is just simply this observation. God does not always prevent sin. Okay, Psalm 81 puts it this way. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. We see that through the lens of the people of Israel. God allowed them to choose idolatry, to choose immorality, to choose wickedness. He didn't stop them from those sinful behaviors. He doesn't stop you from every sin that you could commit. He doesn't stop others from every sin they could commit. God does not always choose to prevent sin. I'll give you a third observation. This is one we may have a little trouble with, but it's true. God can direct sin. How about Acts 2.36? This is in Peter's sermon there on the Pentecost day. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Folks, it was a sinful act that caused Judas to betray Jesus. It was a sinful act that caused Peter to deny Jesus. It was a sinful act that caused the disciples to desert Jesus. 
It's a sinful act that caused the Jewish religious leaders to be jealous of Jesus and put Jesus forward to be crucified. It was a sinful act of cowardice that Pilate didn't stand up for an innocent man and put Jesus forward to be crucified. It was a sinful act that the murderous Roman soldiers there hung Jesus on a cross. That was sinful. Those are sinful acts that those individuals will be held accountable for before God. But in the midst of all of those sinful acts by all of those individuals, God was orchestrating even the acts of sin to bring about something far greater than the acts of sin toward Jesus. He was bringing about our salvation and redemption. We could quote with Joseph from Genesis chapter 50, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. What people intended for evil on Jesus, God intended for good. Folks, this is encouraging for us. Because it means this, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for, those, for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Folks, only a truly sovereign, masterful, in-control God can take things that are wicked, sinful, and evil and still use for His glory and His purposes. I don't want a God that can't direct sin. I want a God that can direct sin because He's the one that's in control. Let me give you a fourth observation about God and sin. How about this? God can limit sin. Job 1.12. This is where Satan and Job are having a conversation. We'll, we'll follow up on that in a moment. But God says to Satan, everything he has, talking about Job, is in your power, but the man himself, on the man himself, do not lay a finger. In other words, he limited Satan's disruption of Job's life in that first interaction, and then he gave Satan even more permission in chapter 2. So God can limit sin. But it's, God's not the cause of sin, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a little more detail when we finally get to the problem of evil and sin, but that's a couple of weeks away. But in God's providence, those are the ways He interacts with sin. Talk about another issue with God's providence. God and Satan are God and evil. We'll get into evil in the details later. But here's what I want you to know. We have an enemy who hates us. He wants to destroy us. He wants to cause us... Um, disruption in our spiritual lives. He wants to distract us from God's Word. He wants to keep us from faith. He wants to keep us from worship. He wants to destroy our marriages and our homes. He wants to break our hearts. But I want to remind you that the enemy we have is God's enemy. What I mean by that is, he does not operate outside of the sovereign rule of God. Many worldviews have this concept that good and evil are like opposing uh, equal powers. That there is a good God and there is an evil God and they're warring against each other. Or you can take the Star Wars concept of, of the, the, the dark side of the force and the light side of the force. And they're equal concepts. That's not the Bible. In the Bible, there's no such thing as a good God and an evil God who's working against a good God. No, it is a good God, a truly good God, a holy, righteous God, and an evil being that was created by the good God. If you look in the book, book of Job, for example, and this is a tremendously encouraging thing for you to do. Read Job and read God's interactions with Satan and Job. God allowed and gave permission to Satan to do what he did to Job. Satan couldn't act on Job without God's permission. Now, that may trouble us on other levels. 
But let me tell you something. That should tremendously encourage us in the fact that Satan cannot do anything in your life that ultimately he won't answer to God for. He's God's devil. In other words, God is still in charge of even the enemy that wants to destroy the lives of those who are fallen and keep them from coming to Christ or the lives of those who are Christians and disrupt them from their Christian faith. God is in control. He's sovereign over our enemy and his providential work in the world even oversees the work of the enemy, the work of the devil. Let me give you a, a, a third kind of area of tension under, under this providence, free will, sovereignty, and sin. How about God and free will? Now, one of the major challenges to within biblical theology, Christian theology, is this idea of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And where, where does that play out? Now, I just want to tell you up front, we're not going to go all the way down that rabbit hole tonight. Uh, we are, when we get to the doctrine of salvation, which unfortunately is probably still several months away from us getting that far, we are going to talk about the specific concepts of election, predestination, foreknowledge, uh, and what that means in terms of our response to God through salvation. But one thing we need to deal with in the subject of providence is free will. Do we have a free will? Do you have a free will? What does the Bible teach about us having a free will? And how does that relate to God's providential work in the world? If God is absolutely sovereign, do we actually have a free will? And I'm going to give kind of some qualified answers here, okay? I think the only way that we can actually have any kind of free will is if there's a God who's absolutely sovereign. Here's why. Because only a God who's absolutely and completely in control and absolutely and completely sovereign could tolerate, only that God could tolerate His creation making sinful choices that would push back against His glory and His greatness and His plan. Only God who is great and sovereign could allow creation, all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve, to choose to sin and allow us, by extension, to choose to sin against Him. That's only the way God works. The, the problem with having unlimited free will, and this is where you get into the tensions with the doctrine of salvation, is I believe our free will is tainted by sin such that we cannot come to God on our own, at least of our own volition or completely of our own good choices. In other words, I can't get to God completely on my own. I can't make myself righteous before God by obeying Him to a certain degree. Now, we'll get into the details of that. If you're troubled by that, give me a few months, and we'll talk about that in detail, predestined election, and all of those details in the doctrine of salvation. Here's where that, uh, that, that lands for tonight. We have a free will, but here's the reality. In your free choice, and my free choice... We have consistently chosen to disobey God. You say, but I'm here tonight. I'm, I'm at a, I mean, this is the cream of the crop of biblical Christianity. You know that, right? It's the folks that come on Wednesday night. I mean, you want to see the godly people at a church? You know, the folks that come on Wednesday night are the folks that, that want to grow in their relationship with Jesus. Um, so you say, I'm, I'm here. How do I, I consistently choose to do sin and evil. I'm just going to be, just be, I'm going to be a little honest with you. You can be a little honest with me. I've been a Christian for 24 plus years. 
And just this week, I've knowingly, intentionally done things I knew were sinful because I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Anybody in here want to admit the same? We consistently, I mean, and, and that's why we need confession. That's why we need repentance. That's why we need to come back to God and acknowledge that we choose the wrong thing. Our free will is bound by our sinful nature. We do have freedom. We do have a free will. But it is not an unlimited free will like God's sovereignty is an absolute sovereignty. Because we're not infinite. We're not the equal of God. Our free will, yes we have it, but our free will is not going to thwart the ultimate plans of God. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine that you're on an ocean liner. A massive ocean liner with all sort of activities. If you want to, you can think it's a cruise line. If you're into that sort of thing, or if you would dare to go on a cruise in the COVID era. Cruise ship, massive deck, all sort of activities. Well, while you're on that cruise ship, do you realize you can go eat dinners? And you can make whatever choice you want to make that's offered to you on that cruise ship. You could go to the buffet, or you could get pizza at midnight. Or you could follow pizza up with ice cream. Or you could chase that down with some coffee at the end of the evening. Or you could take a long walk on the deck to try to work off the calories that you just ate. Or you could go on one of the excursions. All sort of things you could do on that ship. You have all sort of freedom on that ship. But do you know what you don't have control over? The direction of the ship. The ship is going a certain way. And you can't change the direction of the ship. I think that's a really good illustration. Not a perfect one. Not a perfect metaphor by any stretch of the imagination. But that's a really good illustration of what our free will is like in the world in which we live. We're operating. We're living in a world where God is directing the, the, the pathway that the world is going. And, and folks, we need that to be the truth. Because that's the only way revelation happens. The way God says revelation is going to happen when we're on the winning side underneath the authority of King Jesus. God is working out the things that are going on in the world according to His plan and according to His purpose. Yes, we have free will, but we have free will inside of the ultimate authority and the ultimate sovereignty of God. Does that make sense? I hope that helps you. It certainly helps me. And one way that, that really should encourage us is this. Folks, if God's plan was going to be thwarted in a way that was going to be eternally detrimental to humanity, it would have been thwarted 2,000 years ago when Jesus went to the cross and when Jesus rose from the dead. And if God worked through jealous Jewish religious leaders and worked through an evil Roman empire and worked through all of those circumstances to bring about the death of His Son, the atoning death of His Son, for the salvation of sinners and His resurrection, so that you and I today can sit in a Baptist church in Wilkesboro, thousands of miles removed from the place and thousands of years removed from the time of those events, that should give us ultimate confidence in the sovereign capability of God to bring about salvation in the world. On top of that, He found you when you were a lost sinner, living in your sinful free will. And He redeemed you and rescued you so God, that's God and free will. Uh, a connected idea is God and salvation. Again, we won't get into all the details of this. If you want to read a passage of Scripture that would encourage you in terms of sovereignty and salvation, free will and salvation, read Ephesians chapter 1, which again 
acknowledges the very purposes of God to bring sinners into a faith relationship with himself. So let me get to uh, point number three here, providence, sovereignty, and God's relation to time and space. So this is where kind of philosophy and theology meet a little bit, trying to navigate this. Part of our trouble with thinking about sovereignty and providence, and if we wanted to use the terms foreknowledge and predestination, part of our problem in thinking about those things and part of our tension in thinking about those things is we're looking at them through a linear timeline. So you and I live in 2022. We don't live in... We, we, we weren't born in 1000 BC. We live today. And so we think of the world and think of the events in the world in terms of a past, present, future type of, uh, type of timeline, type of reality. So what happened in the Old Testament is in the past. What happened with Jesus on the cross is in the past. What happens in the book of Revelation, or at least part of it, is in the future when Jesus comes back and sets up his rule on planet Earth. So we're thinking past, present, and future. Okay, We're thinking a linear timeline. Because we are bound by space-time. You and I can't step out of space-time. I guess, technically, if we could go the speed of light, we could like not experience time, but we don't have a ship fast enough to go the speed of light. We haven't entered the Star Star Wars or Star Trek world to be able to accomplish that. Can't do that yet. So we're bound by space-time. Okay, let me just remind you of something. God is not bound by space-time. Okay? He doesn't exist inside of space-time. When God created the world, however he uh, he spoken into existence, but whenever that happened, whenever the events that started the, the, the expansion of the universe, whenever he created, as we talked about last week, God did not come inside of creation and live inside of creation. God is outside of the created universe. So space time does not function the same way in God or with God as it does with us. So for us, the dilemma of God looking into the future and redeeming people, you know, into the future foreknowledge, that is a tension for you and me. That's not a tension for God because God's not inside our timeline. He doesn't exist inside our timeline. He's outside of space-time. Now, a couple things about that. One, that means God is a lot bigger than sometimes we give him credit for. And that's, that's reality, folks, okay? We think we worship God rightly. And when we worship God according to the truth of Scripture, we do worship God rightly. But we never will worship God completely as, as it, as it uh, relates to His exhaustive reality. I mean, you may know God truly from Scripture, but we won't know God exhaustively from Scripture because He is infinite and we're not. He is far greater than we could ever imagine. Far bigger than we could ever dream. I mean, we sang, how great is our God? And we sang it, and I believe he meant it. But he's greater than even we sang. He's so much greater than even we sang. So here's the, here's the line, and this is a quip that came from a pastor friend of mine. It's not, it's not original to me. I wish it was, but it's not. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be great enough to worship. 
If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be great enough to worship. Folks, one of the things we just need to remember and land on and own as Christians is that there are some things that are going to trouble us theologically and philosophically about our relation to the world, theology. They just are. Because God is far greater than we are. And for God to take His true ideas and claims and teachings of Scripture and drop them in the 66 books that we have in the Bible, when God speaks and speaks about these issues, predestination, election, foreknowledge, providence, sovereignty, when He says these things, you know, some of these things are going to be past us. Even Paul, who wrote it, got at the end of Romans uh, you know, 11, 9, 10, and 11, that really challenging set of text of Scripture where he's talking about all these issues. And he gets to the end of it and he says, Whew! God is greater than we can imagine. And let's just praise Him because He's greater than we can imagine. And really that's what thinking about the greatness and the majesty and the glory of God should do. It should elevate our intention to worship. Uh, another way to look at it, another illustration that may be helpful, would be to consider a tapestry. And some of you may have done something like a tapestry, a quilt or something that's similar to that. But if you take a tapestry and you look at the backside of a tapestry, it's a mess. You've got all sort of hanging strings. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't look like it fits. But if you turn the tapestry around and look at the front side of it, it's a beautiful piece of art. Now, one thing we need to remember is we're looking at the mess side. You and I are looking at the side of life that doesn't make sense. You know, how, how could God allow the terrible evils of the Nazi regime? How could he allow a country founded on biblical Christianity or founded from that frame of reference to adopt a practice such as abortion? How could he be in control of the world when we have the, the presidential elections of the last several seasons and all this geopolitical chaos? How could he allow... The King, Kim Jong-un's and all of those leaders. All, how can he do all that? Well, we're looking at the wrong side. We're looking at the mess side. We're not looking at the full picture of what God is doing in the world. And we won't see that until we get to heaven. Make sense? Let me give you several takeaways and we'll finish up for tonight. Takeaway number one. That God rules over all through his providential sovereignty means we can trust him. The only way we can actually depend on God is if God is able to do far more than you and I can do. All right? If God is like us, limited by our stuff, then he's not a very trustworthy God because he's not able and capable. But folks, the God we serve is not that God. The God we serve is not limited by time and space. He's not limited by nations and geopolitical realities. He's not sweating and, and rubbing his hands together in heaven, wondering what he's going to do about inflation. And how is he going to fix the problems in the Ukraine and Russia? What's he going to do about China? God's not worrying about those things because he's far above those things. He's more extensive than those things. That means we can trust him. And our trust has a valid place for us to put it in. We can put it in God. Here's takeaway number two. That God is providentially sovereign means we can be assured of our salvation. If God is the one who organized, orchestrated, planned, purposed, 
caused, accomplished, and then saved us, if he's the one behind the work of salvation, then let me encourage you, you can't lose it. You can't lose your salvation. Jesus is the one that bought it, paid for it. That's what John 10 says. We can be assured. In fact, if God is not providentially sovereign, if, if the open theists are right and God doesn't really know the future, or if the deists are right and God's not really involved in the way the world works, you and I as followers of Jesus or followers of that God are in some trouble. Because then maybe our salvation rests on our ability to be perfect or be good enough or not sin right before we die, as in some other theologies or some other uh, doctrinal systems. But folks, our salvation does not rely upon the level of perfection you and I have. And thank heavens it doesn't. It relies on what Jesus did on the cross. It relies on his rule and his reign. It relies on his sovereign glory and greatness. It relies on the fact that he's not going to lose what he's accomplished. So that God is providentially sovereign means we can be assured of our salvation. And guess what? We've got our middle schoolers in the room. Hey guys. Good to see you. We'll be done in like one minute, and then you can talk and chatter. And uh, hey, Josh, how are you? Good to see everybody. We got a pile of middle schoolers, by the way. This is not all of them, but this is a bunch of them. And you ought to see the one, all the kids in the sanctuary that were in there earlier. It's fantastic. Thanks for bringing them and being here. Here's the last point: that God is providentially sovereign means that our prayers and our praises mean something. So how does prayer work? And, and we didn't even touch on prayer and miracles and angels and all of those fit underneath pro, uh, God's providence. So real quickly, do our prayers change God's mind on things? I, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I, but I think our prayers function within God's plan and purpose will to bring about what he wants to accomplish. They have to. Because God tells us to pray. And when we pray, God somehow works. I don't know why and how, but he does. And he invites us to pray. But here's the reality. The only way that our prayers and our praises actually function meaningfully in the world is if we are praying to a God who could actually do anything we asked him to do about the situations we're in. In fact, Paul put it this way. Now to him is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. So take your biggest ask, your biggest request, your greatest miracle prayer and pray it to God. Pray all the big things you want. Pray bigger things than the biggest things that you want. And God can do exceedingly abundantly more than the greatest things you could ever imagine that he could do. Folks, the kind of God we want to pray to is a God that's that able. Because if he's not that able, why talk to him? But folks, he's that able. And, and he has intervened over and over and over and over again. How he brings all that about, how he takes James 5, chapter 5, verse 17, the, uh, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, how he takes Elijah and provides him food through ravens, through prayers in the Old Testament, I don't know. But he does. And because he does, when you bow your head and pray to God, he is able. When you praise and worship and sing His glory, folks, He's able. That's the kind of God we serve. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.